It's time for security now. Steve Gibson is here. We're going to talk about the latest security news, uh, including that leaked FBI laptop. And, of course, uh, your questions and Steve's answers. We've got some great questions for you coming up next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 368, recorded September 5th, 2012. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 150. Security Now is brought to you by Audible.com. To download the free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the show that uh, protects you online. Steve Gibson, the explainer-in-chief, is here he is uh, from uh, GRC.com, the creator of Spinrite, world's finest hard drive maintenance and recovery utility, and joins us every week to talk about security. And a good day to you, Steve. Hey, Leo. Great to be with you again. As always, after some delays for important news, we, we actually, actually have, have a, a Q&A. We actually <laughs> have a Q&A wow. this week. Yeah. Now, well, you know, I almost thought because there, there was that FBI database that was leaked yesterday. And I almost uh, thought, oh, crap, we're not going to do questions again this week. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're definitely going to be talking about that. Yeah. So that's happening for sure. We've got to have uh, a fun quote from the hackers who posted the list up on Pastebin. And as we know, the FBI is denying that they ever had that data or that it came from that laptop. We don't know. Well, who are you going to trust? A bunch of anonymous hackers or the FBI? That's a tough yeah, question, actually. <laughs> neither. None of the above. Do I have a, is there a third one? <laughs> I mean, I trust the FBI, but on the other hand, there's a lot of incentive to, to deny uh, this breach. Yes. Yes. Strong need to deny it. And although at the same time, the hackers could simply be trying to, you know, give the FBI right. a, a black I, eye. I'm kind of in that that well we'll we'll talk about it that's good yeah 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 and uh, you have and we have got q and a we have news we news, have a yeah. we have news of that we discussed at length last week with java and uh, many of our listeners i'm probably every one of our listeners know that immediately i mean the the, the i would say the ink was hardly dry but we don't use ink on the podcast so the files were still freshly dated. When, when, uh, <laughs> the, bits, the bits were newly minted. <laughs> they hadn't really settled down no, yet. No, the electrons yeah. were still buzzing. And we got another one, which is not right either. Oh. So we'll, be ta- we'll talk about that <clears throat> and a bunch of other cool things. Cool. Before we do that, can I mention Audible.com? You still don't do it. i got to get you on the audiobook thing. That's not going to happen, no. You, don't, you like to read I do. I'm a, tech, I'm a print guy. Yeah. God, for me, you know, I was talking to my son, uh, Henry, who's uh, slightly dyslexic, 18 years old. And, you know, he's had a hard time in school because he said, uh, it's very hard for me to, I can't read a page. I, I, you know, by the end of the page, I have to go back and start over because I've completely lost it. And I know how that is. And I said, you know what, Henry, it's funny because that was always a problem for me until I discovered audiobooks. And it really, some people, 
uh, are auditory learners. They they can absorb audio. audio. That's why I'm on radio for crying out loud. It's well, and our podcast is primarily audio, yeah. and I'm so I'm glad for all of that. Yeah, and certainly uh, one of the reasons Audible is always advertised on a podcast is because they realize if you're listening to podcasts, you probably are an auditory learner. So you might be interested in the idea of listening to audio audio books. So I got Henry an Audible account. And he said, do they have any Christopher Hitchens? I love Henry. I said, yes, they do. Okay. <laughs> and then here's Richard Dawkins. And yeah, he's just, uh, you know, it's so that's why it's kind of neat. I mean, here's a kid who would read, wants to read, wants to learn, um, but just but it's finds no it, fun. It's no fun just, for him. Yep. Because it's too much work. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I set him up and uh, his memoir, Hitch 22, is on there. And the one that uh, Henry wanted to read, which is God is not great. How religion poisons everything. Uh, there are certainly both sides of this discussion on Audible.com. Audible's not making a statement here by any means. Uh, but the point is you can learn, you can read, you can, and you can entertain yourself as well. He's, he's also listening uh, to the new Daniel Suarez novel, which is fantastic about predator drones. There's so much good stuff uh, on here, actually, there's a new Christopher Hitchens book, which is interesting because he passed away about three months ago. Uh, um, do they yet have Trojan Horse? Because one of my notes in our show this week is that Mark Rasunovich's Trojan Horse novel is now out. Mm, it doesn't look like it. They, Probably not. I think it they, just just happened. Well, that's one of the things that's kind of uh, neat about Audible is that very frequently, bestsellers anywhere are out day and date. I don't think they have any of Rasinovich's stuff, which means his publisher hasn't released right. the audio rights to it. You right. know, Audible does an interesting thing. They actually will record, in particular science fiction, uh, themselves, books that uh, that the publisher doesn't want to record. They'll, they'll get the rights. Like Ready Player One is a good example from Ernest Cline. In fact, they have a great recording of this uh, book by Will Wheaton. Uh, uh, so, and this is, uh, so this, I just, I'm a big fan. Now, here's the deal. I'm going to get you one book free so you can see if you like Audible. Here's the uh, SEAL Team 6 account of the killing of uh, Osama bin Laden by one of the guys who was on the team. Yeah. Uh, that's, that will be a dramatic read, huh? Audible, here's the deal. Go to uh, 100,000 titles. Go to audiblepodcast.com. Pick a book. AudiblePodcast.com slash security now will get you a month free. You'll be signing up for the gold account. That's a book a month account. But your first month is free. Your first credit is free. You can pick any book that's a credit, which is most of them. And then if you want, cancel at any time, own nothing, and keep the book forever. So it's a pretty good deal. We're getting you a, a good free book here. And there's lo the tough thing is there's so much to choose from. How <laughs> about this one from... Uh, Gretchen Rubin, happier at home, kiss more, jump more, abandon a project, read Samuel Johnson and other my other experiments in the practice of everyday life. <laughs> I, I don't know about reading Samuel Johnson, but I'm, I'm willing to kiss more. I think that sounds like a good way to, to live. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. They play back on any computer, of course, but they've got great apps for the iPhone, Android phones, Windows phone. Uh, you can also uh, listen on any iDevice. It's really great. It's a great way to get books to read, to read when you don't have time to read. And most of us are so busy now that one of our uh, reading was always my greatest joy. And I just, I didn't have time. And now I read all the time because I'm at the gym, or I'm driving, I'm carpooling, all of that stuff. This morning, Henry and I were listening to Rich and Dawkins' newest, The Magic of Reality. AudiblePodcast.com slash 
security now. Give it a try today. Steve Gibson, let's get the security news. Let's do that. So um, we spoke extensively last week of Java yet again. And um, I was explaining, I think what I what I liked best about what I the way I posed things last week was the idea that Java being invocable by web browsers was inherently a problem because it was a full-strength language not designed for web clients, whereas JavaScript was designed for web clients. So JavaScript is safe Er, <laughs> certainly not er. without its problems. Thus, we have no script in order in order to even control scripting. But Java is is very dangerous, and the problem with Java is that in order to try to control it, they have attempted to sandbox it. And we've talked about sandboxing uh, off and on through the years because it's it's very much like a firewall where you've got goodies behind the firewall that you want to keep bad guys from getting. Well, it th- th- that creates an inherent tension. There, There's a problem because then you're depending upon your firewall to limit access to something you don't want people to have. It's much safer not to have it in the first place. So JavaScript is better in that way. So what happened was almost immediately after last week's podcast, the, the day after, uh, Oracle did release their emergency out-of-cycle update, which wasn't scheduled until the middle of next month, I think October 18th or 16th, if I remember correctly. Um, But they did it immediately because this was a zero-day, two different vulnerabilities that had been reported, um, I think, more than a year ago, and they had not gotten around to fixing them. So they pushed that out immediately. And at that point... Uh, Adam Gaudiak of Security Explorations, who told, who had some dialogue with Oracle as recently as April of this year about the those and other problems, he posted, "Hello all. Yesterday, an out of patch was released by Oracle, which, among other things, incorporated fixes for the issues exploited by the recent Java." SE7 attack code, and then he says in parentheses, class finder, method finder bugs, which is what we discussed last week. He said one of the fixes incorporated in the released update addressed the exploitation vector with the use of the Sun AWT Sun Toolkit class, which is where those two methods are. He said removing get field and get method methods from the implementation of the aforementioned class caused all of our full sandbox bypass proof of concept codes not to work anymore. And so that's the good news. He says, please note that not all security issues that were reported in April of 2012, so about four months ago, got addressed by the recent Java update. So... Today, we sent a security vulnerability report along with proof of concept code to Oracle. The code successfully demonstrates a complete JVM, which is Java Virtual Machine, sandbox 
bypass in the environment of the latest Java SD software, which is version 7, update 7, released on August 30th, which was Thursday of last week, 2012. The reason for it is a new security issue discovered that made exploitation of some of our not yet addressed bugs possible to exploit again. So Oracle chose not to fix all the problems that they knew about. They only fixed the two that were being actively exploited, left the other ones alone. And so these guys designed yet another proof of concept to show to Oracle yet again that there's still trouble. Now, this, of course, exposes us to the same problem, which, which is further indication that we really, we really do need to start listening to all the security people in the entire industry who are now saying, get rid of it. If you don't need it, remove it. I did see some disturbing tweets from people in, um, um, I'm thinking Sweden, um, maybe Switzerland, some uh, somewhere like that, saying that the banks over there depend upon Java for all of the online banking. So yeah. it's like, okay, yeah. that's, that's not going to be a problem. Yeah. I think there's a lot of places where you do need Java. Java. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, I mean, it, it is powerful. It's multi-platform. It's, it's, we, we need to consider it to be a, a transitional technology in the same way that Flash was and where the, the evolution of the, of the native capabilities of our browsers represented by the movement to capabilities available in HTML5 from HTML4 and things like, um, you know, those extra services which are which will be available in JavaScript will increasingly replace these sorts of third-party solutions. And, you know, the good news is there is certainly pressure on everyone in the same way that, I mean, Adobe and Flash has been in the doghouse because they were not in the sandbox uh, for so long. The same thing is happening with Java. I mean, that you, you can't have the industry advising everyone to uninstall it without that uh, creating some some pressure on that. Is it so, as good, to, uh, people keep asking me this, uh, we talked about it last week, but is it as good to disable it in the browser as to uninstall it? It's certainly better than nothing. Okay, if you, if you really need it, then I think the better, the, 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 the a, a workable compromise is to use a different browser. For example, you're have when you click a link, you'll you're, you'll have your system default browser, whatever you choose for for it to be. You know, Chrome, IE, Firefox, whatever. Um, maybe do not install the the plugin for Java in that browser, so that so that your random link clicking and surfing can't just cannot invoke Java, but have a browser which you use for playing games or talking to your Swiss bank or whatever it is you're doing. And that browser has the Java plugin so that it's able to invoke Java. That, 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 that way you've, you've created on your end, although you, know, you're, you have responsibility for doing <clears throat> this correctly. The idea would be, though, that the default browser you're using doesn't have Java plugin, cannot invoke Java 
through the browser. And you then you need to explain. I mean, many of us do that, for example, with IE. I don't use IE for anything except Windows Update that, you know, wants to use IE um, under XP. So so that's an example of, you know, the idea of multiple browsers, sad as this is to, to suggest the need for, but multiple browsers for for to, to create some isolation. So. Yeah, and and modern browsers like Chrome and Safari will warn you before they run Java. It doesn't they don't run you run Java ever without warning? They say I want to run Java, allow or disallow, right? Oh, okay. Um, yeah, Safari I'm, does. I'm pretty sure Chrome does. Safari. Apple has been making some good inroads from the security yeah. standpoint. As we know, it keeps it disabled, it times it out and re-disables it. And so, I mean, they're, they're, they've been very proactive on behalf of their users after, you know, the, the catastrophe of hundreds of thousands of machines getting infected from the prior Java zero-day yeah. exploit. So, you know, tell people also, pay attention. And if it's one thing if you, you know, you're running a game and it says, may I launch Java. It's another thing if you're just at a regular website and it says, may I launch Java. <laughs> yeah, and so here we are. We're, we're looking at the difference between the common, the typical user and our audience. Right. Our audience, they know. I, can, I can say two browsers, one with Java, one without. Not a problem. That, that, that same audience will say, ooh, Wait a minute. Why am I being prompted to run Java? Steve and Leo have told me over and over and over I can get in trouble when I do that. And I'm here. I'm going somewhere where I'm not expecting to run Java. So so this audience understands that. But there's just no way that, you know, anybody who's who is just your typical Internet user is not going to get in trouble. I mean, so so I mean, it's the industry needs to protect users from from the dangers of, you know, common actions. And unfortunately, running Java is a common action. I'm certain, certainly at some point, many people have had their browsers say, oh, in order to do this, you need to click this button. Most people do. And it's like it downloads and installs right. Java. Right. And annoyingly, it also installs extra stuff you don't want to. I can't even believe that, Leo. When I was updating my Java, there was an opportunity to install some was it a security? I think McAfee security scam. Oh it's no! Like, Thank oh, you, yeah. Oracle. You piece of junk. Unbelievable. Shiminy. I know. Oh, you blame Oracle. Yeah, of course I do, and yeah. that's just wrong. Blame Oracle. I mean, that's they're, just wrong. they're. I mean, they're getting revenue from that. They're upselling their. You know, now, Java's their, free, their... but it's always been free. This is part of the deal when you bought Java. Yep. You know, you bought Sun uh, that you know, open source it or something. You know. If you're yeah. not going to keep, it's one thing if they would keep it up to date, then maybe I wouldn't mind giving a little something. So, so if I go to free Java download, oh, it won't let me because I'm, uh, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm on a Mac. I don't even know. If yeah, my that. my most recent Java update. I'm very sure that there was it was checked by default, and it was get oh, a free McAfee sneaky. security scan. It's like that's oh, so not okay. Bad people. Bad. People. So, um, okay, the big news is the, of the week, new news, instead of new old news or <laughs> old new news or something. Anyway, uh, new new news is that 12,367,232 <laughs> Apple iOS unique device 
identifiers, UDIDs, along with usernames, the name of the device, the type of the device, uh, something called Apple push notification service tokens, users' zip codes, their cell phone numbers, their physical addresses, etc., and personal detail fields referring to people were leaked onto, uh, well, were, were obtained by a group of hackers. So um, I tweeted, if anyone is curious to see this themselves, um, I tweeted uh, at SGGRC, so uh, twitter.com slash SGGRC, and my very first, my, my, my most recent couple tweets, I tweeted just this morning for the podcast, there's a link to um, the paste bin page where one million and one of these 12 million plus UDIDs have been posted. And excerpting a piece from the long uh, dialogue that's there, it says, during the second week of March 2012, a Dell Vostro notebook used by supervisor Special Agent Christopher K. Stangle from FBI Regional Cyber Action Team and the New York FBI Office Evidence Response Team was breached using the Atomic Reference Array vulnerability in, <coughs> wait for it, <laughs> Java. During the shell session, some files were downloaded from his desktop folder, one of them with the name of NCFTA underscore iOS underscore devices underscore Intel dot CSV. So a comma separated values file. It turned out to be a list of 12,367,232 Apple iOS devices, including Unique device identifiers, usernames, name of device, type of device, uh, service tokens, zip codes, cell phone numbers, addresses, etc. The personal details fields referring to people appears many times empty, leaving the whole list incomplete on many parts. No other file on the same folder makes mention about this list or its purpose. Now, this is all allegedly. I mean, this is, these guys... You, yes. So who knows these guys? So we can't. We trust don't them. know. We this don't even is know who true. they are. Yeah. We don't know this is true. Um, this sounds plausible. So does the FBI's denial that they ever had such a list. And Apple uh, just recent, just minutes ago, denied that they gave the FBI such a list. Um, okay. Not so, that Apple would have to give the FBI a list to have such a thing. but A security consultant in Dundon, New Zealand, Aldo, Aldo Cortesi, has been worried about the whole issue of UDIDs for years. Um, in, his, in his little About Me, he says, I hack on things that interest me and run NCUBE, a small security consultancy that provides services worldwide. Um. And I liked his description, so I'll share it. He's, and this is this is a post from from him a year ago, 9th of September, 2011. And he said, "A UDID is a unique device identifier. You can think of it as a serial number 
burned permanently into every iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch. Any installed app, now this is a year ago, and we'll talk about what Apple has done since in the current state. So a year ago, any installed app can access the UDID without requiring the user's knowledge or consent. We know that UDIDs are very widely used. In a sample of 94 apps I tested, 74% silently sent the UDID to one or more servers on the Internet, often without encryption. This means that UDIDs are not secret values. If you use an Apple device regularly, it's certain that your UDID has found its way into scores of databases you're entirely unaware of. Developers often assume UDIDs are anonymous values and routinely use them to aggregate detailed and sensitive user behavioral information. One example is Flurry, a mobile analytics firm used by 15% of apps I tested, he writes, which can monitor application startup, shutdown, scores achieved, and a host of other application-specific events all linked to the user's UDID. I recently showed that it was possible to use OpenFaint, a large mobile social gaming network, to de-anonymize UDIDs, linking them to usernames, email addresses, GPS locations, and even Facebook profiles. This post looks at the way UDIDs are used in the broader social gaming ecosystem. The work is based on a simple question. What happens if we swap our UDID for another while communicating with the network? There are a number of ways to do this. In my case, I used MITM, which of course we know is an acronym for man in the middle, MITM proxy, an intercepting HTTPS proxy I developed, which lets me rewrite the traffic leaving a device on the fly. In most cases, this was a simple matter of replacing one string with another. But two networks, Scoreloop and Crystal, prevented UDID substitution using cryptography. Unfortunately, both networks relied on the secrecy of key material distributed in the application binaries to every device. I have verified that it's possible to reverse engineer the application binaries to extract the key material and circumvent the cryptographic protection. Okay, but that's a little detail. So he's saying, in general, swapping UDIDs swaps your identity. The outcome of this experiment shows, he writes, that social gaming networks systematically misuse UDIDs, resulting in serious privacy breaches for their users. All the networks I tested allow UDIDs to be linked to potentially identifying user information, ranging from usernames to email addresses, friends lists, and private messages. Furthermore, five of the seven networks allow an attacker to log in as a user using only their UDID, giving the attacker complete control of the user's account, full impersonation. Two networks had further problems that compromised a user's Facebook and Twitter accounts. Crystal lets an attacker take control of, a, of user accounts by leaking API keys, while Scoreloop 
partially discloses users' friends lists, even if they're private. Okay, so um, we have a situation where from day one, our iOS devices have all had a unique ID. I've... Uh, there have been apps on the App Store. I've downloaded them. One called UDID, which you run it and it po- it puts it put it shows you your you your UDID. Uh, you can get that from in the About box too. Exactly. Um, but, but in, 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 in <laughs> you don't need case, an app for that. Well, in, in in this case, it makes it simple because uh, in, I, what I was doing was I was beta testing apps that were not yet public. And so I needed to provide right. the app developer with the UDID of my device. That's the most so common, could, uh, commonly used purpose for UDIDs. Correct. And, and so this made it easy because I was able just to put in uh, that person's email address and it sent a ah. preformatted piece of email in, nice. including the UDID. Otherwise so it was all done for me. In. Yeah. 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 Um, so, so what we have is it's something very much like, you know, like an Internet uh, or sorry, Ethernet MAC address. It is a right. globally unique ID that uniquely identifies the device. But I mean, and, it's, you know, the phone has at least that has a MAC address UDID and it has an IMEI number. It has numerous right. unique identifiers. Right. And so what's happened is 12 million. All phones of these, have this, by the way. We presume 12 yeah. million of these right. are well, and, and, and remember these are also non-phone devices, iPods, right. and, right. and iPads, iPads too. Uh, in, in addition to the iPhone. Right. So anyway, so we have 12 million uh, ostensibly leaked with a ton of user information. There is a site that we've referred to in the past. Should I change my password? dot com, um, and I also tweeted the link to that where you can get your UDID, put it into here, and it will do a check to see whether yours is in the leaked data. And there are a number of, of anecdotal posts on the Internet of people have, who have been active iOS users finding three of their devices UDIDs among this first million leaked uh, um, uh, IDs. So, where's Apple on this? Um, a year ago, Apple acknowledged that this was probably not a good idea. There was an API, an application programming interface, that essentially allowed any any application to ask for the device's UDID. Um, and, it, and it was just a convenient, you know, token to represent the user. The problem is that it was common to all the applications on the device. So with the release of iOS 5, which is where we are today, which was about a year ago, Apple has formally said that that um, the use of UDIDs is deprecated and will be removed from iOS. And since and so, March, they've stopped approving any app that uses UDIDs. So right. So they're, so, so they're saying unique identifier, an alphanumeric string unique to each device based on various hardware details, deprecated in iOS 5. Instead, create a unique identifier specific to your app. 
And so, you know, they're saying, do this yourself. Don't use something global. So this is, you know, I mean, I, this is not the end of the world. This isn't, I mean, we'll see how this gets uh, leveraged and exploited. These things tend to have some legs. So there may be, you know, we may be talking about this again in future weeks or months if if bad things happen as a consequence of this. But for the time being, it's, uh, I just wanted to bring it to, the attention of people who like to follow interesting events in the security world. Yeah, and I guess we, you know, we don't really know what happened. We don't. We have, we we have, have no absolutely. Idea. This is all the assertion of a fairly discreditable group. Yes, I, <clears> yeah, <throat> I, I completely agree. You know, they're saying this is where it came from with lots of information that, Sounds plausible, but right. we don't know. Right. So I, I'm not, or even I, what not, what what to do with it, right? I mean, I'm uh, not. Well, we'll see. I mean, depending on what the information is, right? You know, I mean, if if in fact there are there are networks and apps that simply uh, that identify and authenticate their user purely with the UDID, um, then this bad. means anyone who's in this database can be impersonated. Right. That's not good. Right. Um, so what I would say is any app developer who is still using this um, really, really needs to stop right now. It you know, would be, I mean, nobody's doing it, uh, as I said, actively because Apple won't approve you. So what about apps it would, that have been? That's the it problem. Is it, there's probably a whole bunch of legacy apps that do that. Yes, yes. And, uh, but they have to be updated to stop doing that. Yes, and so what? I, so so the the takeaway from this for app developers is consider that your users are not safe any longer if you are if you if you are giving a UDID too much power. Right. And. We've seen that many apps do, so developers need to immediately change that behavior, like like yesterday. Okay, this is a bizarre little tidbit um, that wraps up our security news for the week. Um, uh, a security researcher has figured out that it is possible to put an entire phishing web page in a URL. <laughs> the whole page. The entire page. <laughs> Encode the whole page. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Um, uh, yes. Uh, I, uh, I posted a link to the, I think I posted a link to it. Um, uh, yeah, also my, my, my Twitter feed. Um, anyway, so this is, um, there's an RFC 14 years old. August of 98. It's RFC 2397. So because of its age, it is completely supported in all browsers. In the same way that you can have HTTP colon and then something like slash slash and domain name and so forth, you can have the word data, data colon. And, and, you then specify the media type like image slash GIF and optionally whether what follows is base 64 encoded to allow you to encode anything that which might otherwise have a problem um, being encoded in the, in the character set. Uh, 
And then you follow it with the content of whatever it is. And in the RFC is an example of them encoding an, a JPEG image in this, in, in an image tag. So, for example, normally, for people who haven't done web pages before, normally a web page would contain an image tag where it would say SRC for the source of the image equals, and then HTTP colon slash slash, and then, you know, so forth. That is the URL for the browser to go fetch the image. It turns out you can use this data colon approach instead and actually put the image data right there in the page so that the browser isn't going and get fetching this object from going back and fetching it from the server, but the page itself contains it. Well, what the researcher recognized was that, that this would also be honored in a URL, which means that you could use any of these link shortening services to have a shortcut which expands to a full-blown web page, and it works. Now, browsers treat this a little differently. They all know about the data colon option. Firefox and Opera work perfectly. They allocate as much memory as necessary and interpret this. You can have JavaScript. You can invoke Java exploits. You can do anything you want to. So the point is, what, what, what's different about this is that traditionally, Fishers, you know, P-H-I-S-H, Fishers, had to have a site somewhere. They had to, you know, maybe have it say, you know, PayPal with PA1 instead of PAL to, to sort of trip you up. They, they had to they had to have a hosting server that you would that your browser would be bounced to. Well, no longer. We don't need to have a site at all. We can bundle the entire fake web page into the URL of the browser using this approach. So the good news is IE limits the length of the, del the data colon element so that it inhibits what can be done. And Chrome is interesting. Chrome does it but brings up a security kind of warning saying, um, this is sort of strange. <laughs> That's an awful long URL. <laughs> Are you sure you meant that? How, how long can it be? 256 characters? I mean, there's... Zero. No, 23K. 23K. Yeah, I mean... But what is IE limited to? Uh, I, I, it, they, 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 uh, I didn't look... Not 23K. <laughs> yeah, a lot, a lot shorter. So, That's so the, an and, awful and lot. In this, in this PDF, in the appendix, they show a, the, a complete Base64 encoded page. Anybody who was curious could, like, copy and paste it into their wow. URL, and up comes a well-formed, ready-to-go phishing page. It's just incredible. So I thought, okay, it, that's... I'm looking that's, at it. It's a pretty It's a pretty long... And because it's Base64 encoded, it's... it's yeah, uh, but know. I mean, that's the URL, and, and Firefox and Opera go, wow, okay. All right, if you insist, <laughs> here it is. Wow, look at that. It's that's funny. something, yeah. 
Yeah, and Chrome, you are able to click through Chrome's questioning of this and go, yeah, that's, that's what I meant, and then you get the page. Well, I'm so going to try it now. I'm Now you got my curiosity. I <laughs> wonder what Safari does. It's quite a bit of a copy and pasting here. All right. Yeah, yeah. and it's across page breaks and so yeah. forth. Well, I, I hope I didn't get page numbers in there. doesn't look like it. It looks like they made it so that you could do that. Let me, let me try it in uh, Safari here. Yep, it opened. <laughs> Log in to create account. Wikipedia looks oh, just like a page. That's the page. That's it. That, Holy that cow! Yes. So that it didn't go out and get any of this. This is all in that base sixty four encoded text, Isn't and no warning from Safari at all. Nope. It just did it. And wow. so you use a link shortener and click. You know, that's in email or it's wherever. And your browser just says, oh, I'm going to display all of this right from the address bar. Let's, now, now you got me going here. Let's try Chrome. That's Paste the that in. Oh, did I get it? Maybe it's too, maybe, maybe Chrome won't even let me. Yeah, see, I, maybe I don't have it anymore. Huh. Well, that's, that, oh, yeah. You know what? I bet you that, among other things, it cleared my clipboard. Does it? <laughs> With everything it's else it did? Script. Yeah, it's, it's running a script. It could have cleared the clipboard so that you can't yeah. you can't investigate. Wow, nice job! Wow, and then cool. Wow, just like okay, <laughs> well, this is unintended consequences. Let's allow us to put embedded data in you know anything. So instead of HTTP colon, we have data colon uh, and anything you want. Mm. Yeah, it's Love cool. It. So um, before we began recording the podcast, I mentioned to you, we discussed a little bit, or maybe it's even when you were doing the Audible uh, uh, mention, uh, that Mark Rasanovich's book, Trojan Horse, that I referred to a couple months ago and read a couple months ago. Mark was kind enough to provide me with a uh, galley of the book, uh, is now out. Um, I looked over on Amazon, and it's in hardcover, paperback, and Kindle versions, um, and a great read. The, it follows on from his first novel with the same characters that he developed there. And what was chilling as I'm reading it, I was thinking about our listeners the whole time, as I mentioned a couple months ago, because everything he was talking about is exactly how this stuff works. And it gives you this sort of this queasy feeling in your stomach about, you know, wow, um, you know, the, the world really is crazy right now, for lack of a better word. Um, anyway, I enjoyed the read, and I wanted to let everybody know that uh, it exists. I also wanted to clarify an acronym collision. I We were talking about the Google Authenticator and its support of OAuth. Well, there's two OAuths. Um, there's O-A-T-H which is the initiative for open authentication. And that's that's what I meant when I said OAuth. But of course, I have often also spoken of OAuth, where it's O-A-U-T-H, which is the, the technology that we have done a full podcast on, where you get, you know, log in using your Twitter credentials, log in using Facebook. You know, that's the whole using one site to authenticate another technology, uh, which is controversially now at version two. There was an interesting posting a while ago from someone who had been 
really deep in the management of the project who was who gave up and pulled up stakes and left the project out of disgust over the nature of sort of you know committees designing things and and he wasn't completely unhappy with with how OAuth was evolving at that point but so anyway i guess OAuth <laughs> versus OAuth uh, yeah cuz anyway, i would pronounce to... it OAuth both yeah yeah i know it's like it's confusing really i actually didn't know there was a difference yes Oops. and so i wanted to make clear that they're that these are very different things there's the google authenticator which I, I mean, and the reason I wanted to bring it up, make sure people understand it, is that I think we're, I think this is going to win. I think the idea of individual accounts in a software-based time authenticator that runs in, you know, in all smartphones and PCs and so forth, and is open source, and I mean, this is a great way of strengthening login. So. Yeah, and uh, I use well, the Google Authenticator. I like it. Yeah, me too. You, well, you so, have to use it for Google, and LastPass uses it too. Right, LastPass yeah. has, um, yes. So Love it. Yeah. So O-A-T-H versus O-A-U-T-H. I guess it's Oath versus O-Auth. O-Oath. Oath. Oath, yeah, you're right. Oath. But see, the pre what's confusing, it's the initiative for open authentication. Uh, exactly. <laughs> Which would yeah. be OAuth, but it's not. So. Okay, so many of our listeners have been excited about the Raspberry Pi project. And I think I've heard you mention... Oh, we've interviewed them, yeah, and we have yeah. them, yeah. And, of course, instantly sold out the first batch and, and scrambled to make more. You know, it's a very inexpensive, lightweight, very capable platform for messing around with... Um, an ARM-based risk chip. Well, Cambridge University has a very nice-looking set of free open courseware for taking someone from the very beginning and learning low-level coding on in the in the ARM's native risk assembly language to build a small operating system, which is really neat. And so one of my, uh, uh, one of the shortcuts in the tweet that I tweeted this morning is the RazPi risk coding tutorial. Anyone who's interested, go to, again, twitter.com slash sggrc. You'll see my tweet there. That'll take you over to the University of Cambridge page. And that's, it's a few levels in because I couldn't really find a way to get in there through navigating, so I thought I would drop you in because you can all easily back yourself out using their little, you know, you are here hierarchy uh, menu up at the top of the page because there's lots of stuff. It looks like they're standardizing on the Raspberry Pi themselves. Every student who is in, in enrolling in computer science gets one, and so they're assuming their students have them and they're developing a bunch of courseware around it and it's all free and on the net so i wanted to point our users to it our our listeners and i did just want to make a mention that i, I meant to mention this last week but i forgot leo my discovery that that 3d that is television in in your home is real i had no idea that like 
that home 3D was real, but I was upgrading an old Sony, um, uh, a big Sony, you know, glass bottle CRT. I'm trying to remember the name of it. It was X, XBR, a Sony XBR right, right. Yeah. Uh, uh, receiver that I had. And so I just, I went to Amazon and poked around and there was an LG, it was about the size I wanted, 47 inches. I thought, oh, okay, that'll, that'll fit. And it said, you know, 3D. And I was like, ah, okay. I just didn't believe that it was anything but a gimmick. Um, but I also needed to update my Blu-ray player. So I got one that was 3D capable. And sure enough, I mean, and, you know, and it, it's, it uses the spiral polarization so that one eye is counterclockwise polarized and the other is clockwise polarized. We talked about this some time ago. This is the real D 3D technology. And so there are passive glasses, no active shutters, no batteries or anything. And you, I mean, it's, it's pretty good. It's, I mean, it's, it was like, it was, didn't cost anything. So I didn't pay much extra for it, but I was just surprised that it, that it was real. And I was, I was tickled by that. I'm in the process of updating my creaky old home media approach. You know, about a decade ago, I set up a, a trio of Series 1 TiVos, and I have updated them. I've updated the Linux kernel in them. I've, um, I've given them larger drives. I've sort of kept them going and alive, but they're standard definition. And so I figured it was time to move. But I know that you and Paul have talked a lot about the media center, the Windows media center. And after poking around looking at Sage, which, which was the one that Mark Thompson was loving, except that Google bought them. So that's sort of no longer an option. I decided to build myself a window media center box. Oh. So, so there's a... There's a really, welcome to the 21st century, Steve. <laughs> yeah. And someday you'll be in this decade. Yeah, there's some things where I don't want to be on the bleeding edge. Because <laughs> apparently it, was, it had a rough you know, history. It used to be an app that you could get for XP... And I guess there was like a media center edition for a while. Yeah, they're offering now, it on Windows Eight. Yeah, and and it's just it's just there in the in the some of the versions of Windows Seven, which right. is what I'm running. Um, but it's very smooth and slick. There's a card by a company called Seton, C E T O N, which is it's called the Infinity V, and it takes it accept it's a PCIe card a 1X PCIe card that you plug a cable card into that you get from your cable company and it'll decode four streams. So I can record four different things at once um, and, and it is a DLNA server and it turns out that all the devices I've recently purchased, this LG flat panel is itself a DLNA uh, client as is the Blu-ray player. So then I get, you know, the whole watch stuff in the other room sort of capability. So as you said, yes, I know. Welcome to the 21st century. But <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad you're happy, Steve. I'm, I'm happy. Good time. <laughs> and speaking of having a good time, Anthony Pritcher wrote on the 1st of September on Saturday with a little note. He said, Spinrite saves me again. He said, hi, Steve. I just felt compelled to tell you that Spinrite saved me again. I was having frequent total computer freezes, i.e. the mouse would not move nor the numlock lights change, 
and a full reset and hard reboot was the only resolution. After running CPU burn-in tests, MemTest86 for over 24 hours, tests and drive smart checks all reported okay. The freezing still occurred every day. I decided to run Spinrite as I know it's the only sure way of knowing the disks are okay. Spinrite did not report anything was fixed. How many times have we heard that? He said, but I have not had a single freeze in over a week. Fingers crossed, but it looks cured. If Spinrite did fix the problem, I didn't know a faulty hard drive would cause Windows to completely lock up. Is this common? Thank you again. And actually, for example, one of the things that the drive is doing might be doing a lot of is swapping. And, you know, it's typically code which is swapped out and swapped back. So your memory could be fine, but if the drive channel was flaky, then, I mean, and not all errors are caught, which is a problem. Um, so, you know, because these are just pretty simple checksums that are being done. It's very possible for errors to get by if they're occurring a lot. Um, and so you might have, you know, the, the, between the, the time the code went out and came back in, you could have some code altered. And when the CPU then attempts to execute that code, which it would do because that's why it was asking for it to be swapped back in, it, you know, it could easily just lock up completely. So, yeah, this is another instance where, where Spinrite fixes things silently because it's working with the drive to clean up sectors and swap them out and make sure that they're being read correctly. So thanks, Anthony, for the report. I'm glad it worked. Yay, me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. It, of course it worked. We have uh, questions for Steve, and Steve has answers for questions. It all kind of symmetric that way. Ten of them coming up in just a bit. Before we do that, though, you know, we couldn't do uh, the shows that we do on this network without our friends at New Tech who make the great TriCaster, and I want to just put in a little plug. They've got a new TriCaster just came out. A lot of people uh, uh, pay attention to what we do and are curious about what we do and, and wonder, you know, how they would do it themselves. And when I tell them the TriCaster we use, the uh, 50 Extreme is about, I think, $25,000. They choke. But then... The good news is if you go to newtech.com, N-E-W-T-E-K.com, they've just announced their most affordable HD TriCaster ever. It's the TriCaster 40, and uh, it is under $5,000, which is a pretty amazing price given this is, does everything that we do uh, here pretty much, uh, including uh, the amazing transitions, the lower thirds, all of that on a sub-$5,000 uh, box. It's really, really Impressive. I want you to visit newtek.com and find out more. Used a lot by houses of worship, schools, but also by professional broadcasters. There's there's barely a broadcaster around that doesn't have a TriCaster somewhere in their truck or in their backup. Or it's just really, it really amazing. I think we use the 40 for uh, our NSFW coverage from a Dragon Con, as a matter of fact. Find out more at newtek.com or call 800. 800- Three six eight five four four one. New Tech's amazing TriCaster now even more affordable, and uh, I'm, I'm tempted to do a let's do a little, little transition here. A tri, I was going to say TriCaster I'm noticing, transition. <laughs> I'm noticing your people are beginning to 
do to stuff use more with like that. There's, there's like a cool. There's like 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 a finger wipe where where yeah. Where the hand We've been using that for iPad today. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of these that we don't. I mean, we don't actually use, but uh, there there are many more than we do use. We're pretty much stuck with the fades. But yeah, we can. I do think it. I saw something kind of come in and bounce. Also, did a sort of like uh, yeah. We have the lower thirds bounce now. Whoa, sorry. Right. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> All of a sudden, I've I've completely lost control. They sh this is normally they don't. There we go. They don't let me play with the TriCaster because I'll just mess it up completely. You know, I. But I, I, here's another thing. I don't know how well uh, those of us, those of you who've been with us since day one, know this. But if you if you're new to any of our shows. When I'm in here with Steve or, or Windows Weekly or doing the radio show, I'm doing all the TriCaster stuff myself. Uh, I, you know, I have the capability God, here. God help us. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but we also, so it's, it can be a one-man operation. I'm doing the whole thing all alone. Um, but you also now have the capability of doing so much more uh, if you have a whole bunch of people who know well, what they're doing and, and the I way do. to put the cost into context is to remember oh, or realize yeah. what the cost of what this is replacing was beyond stratosphere oh, this is a million dollar uh, tv truck right in, in a windows 7 uh, box it's about the size of a shuttle box it's pretty amazing so uh, I just, yeah, a little plug for them and a thank you because uh, they really have been supportive of everything we've done from day one. N-E-W-T-E-K dot com. I like to give them a little plug uh, once in a while on the shows. All right. I have questions. Steve has answers. If you are ready, sir, I shall begin with our first question from Berlin. Michael Walther. <laughs> I wonder if it's his family invented the gun. <laughs> but playing close attention caught a verbal typo or a verbo. Dear Steve, just a, and this isn't even his native language, and he caught this. Just a short aside, in Security Now 365, you mention the logo programming language with its turtle graphics. You then said logo was a product of the mid-60s. Well, not quite so. In the mid-60s, we used to have punch cards and hand-wired magnetic core memory, but not much more. I seem to remember it was shortly after I bought my Apple II back in 1980 that the logo language appeared. Love the show. Cheers. Michael. And of of course he's right. I uh, in the early seventies, in between, was when I was programming my PDP eights um, from and you know working in the afternoons after uh, high school. And so, if I said sixties, I wanted to uh, thank Michael and correct that. Certainly, it's nineteen eighty. That's when nope, it's I nineteen sixty seven. Steve, you were right. What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So Seymour Papert created it. Oh, the, that's right. Yeah. It was on the ground back in back yeah. east. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. At MIT. MIT. Was it? And oh, uh okay. it's based on Lisp. So no, it's vintage. It that is vintage. Is so right. it, it was true that the first you know, a lot of people got exposed to it in school and so forth right. with Apple Twos. Right. But no right. no, logo's been around a long, long I uh, time. I did and remember. It, and I don't think it was originally uh, designed uh, to be teaching kids, you know. Uh, in fact, I'm looking at the article on Wikipedia. The first implementation of Logo was called Ghost, written in Lisp on an SDS 940 at Bolt, Baranek, and Newman, BBN. Yep, BBN, and I was going to say, you, you don't want to give kids, you, even let, you don't want to let them even see the Lisp <laughs> 
programming language. Yeah. Well, actually, the goal was to create a math land where kids could play with words and sentences. So, uh-huh. uh, and they did use turtles right on, right from the beginning. But the first right. turtle was a physical, as you say, on the ground, a physical turtle. Right. <laughs> that moved around. So, uh, Michael, maybe in your first experience, but in fact, they are that old. Uh, yeah. I, I was right from what yep. I remember. Yep. Cool. Yep. Uh, question number two, as soon as I can find it. I, I keep closing these. Here we go. From Max Cohen. He's considering the pla- plight of Matt Honan, our friend who's the uh, writer for Wired.com, who lost all his data, and, and obtaining change. I understand how the people who wreaked havoc for Matt might face criminal charges, but how would one have gone about telling Amazon and or Apple about a security flaw Unless someone with access to a large website, in this case Wired, published it. If a person found a security issue, they could contact the company. But let's be realistic. Would that company even do anything without pressure similar to that which Wired created? It would seem the one reporting the problem could face prosecution for having that knowledge. What are hackers supposed to do? Where's the safe haven or whistleblowing protection for reporting issues? You know, and this perfectly uh, leverages against what we were just talking about, the Oracle problems that had been reported quite some time ago, but because they weren't it's critical. Tricky. I mean, it is, exactly, it is tricky. I mean, it's, you, you can understand on the side of the developer, they're not wanting to respond to every flaw, unfortunately, because there are so many of them. So they would like to aggregate them. And on some level, they must be holding their breath that like, ooh, you know, we have be, we've been privately informed. <laughs> we know it's of, there. <laughs> like really bad. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, crap. nobody finds it. <laughs> yeah. We've been privately informed of some really bad stuff, but we would really like to stick to our release schedule and we hope we make it to October 16th. I mean, maybe that explains why they were able to do it in a day is there it was ready to go. But they thought, well, let's, you know, we don't want to confuse people. We don't want to p- push it out unless we have to. And, but but I think Max Cohen, who asked this question, raises a very good point because m- we have many situations where people report – I mean we're, we're talking about it all the time where these disasters befall companies. They knew about the problem but famously were not fixing it. And it unfortunately, it, it only is when it really becomes a problem or when enough press gets behind it. I mean, you know, essentially that resources get allocated in order to handle it. Until then, everybody's busy doing other things. So it's, it's you know, it's probably just competition for resources. Um, and, and unfortunately, you know, not everybody is Matt who writes for Wired. And it may even be difficult for someone who found a problem to be able to generate the press required. To make something happen for, well, for and that, there's, and there's some risk too, perhaps uh, that you could be arrested. I mean, oh. I, I could think of uh, people like Adrian Lamo, yes. who yes, we uh, see that all the time too. Yeah, I mean, he says I was pen testing. I uh, I was I was just showing the New York Times the, the you know because he broke into the New York Times and started changing data there, not maliciously he says, uh, but just to show them their flaw. But he was prosecuted. Well, and the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, the infamous DMCA, really is overbroad in the protection that it provides to copyright holders, allowing them, for example, I mean, there are university professors who are now afraid to publish their discoveries about 
crypto that we're using because it's DMCA protected. Right. And 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 so that you know that's hurting academia. It's it's hurting the development of the crypto industry. Right. And the security for all of us. Yeah. Uh let's move on. Double click. Thank you. I don't you know it's funny. It's open but it's not showing that it's open. I don't know <laughs> something weird going on with my my computer. Uh, Ethan Stone in Berkeley, California suggests a prevention of Honan's bad weekend. Hi, Steve. So here's my current thought about how to minimize the problem. Oh, boy. <laughs> I set up 10 to, 20, 10 to 20 free feeder Gmail accounts with strong passwords different for each account and two-factor authentication. I set them all up to forward to an additional aggregator account. Not sure that it should be a Gmail for the discussion below. I also set that one up with a separate strong password and, I think, two-factor authentication. I then assign feeder emails at random to everyone who needs an email address. I never post the aggregator email address anywhere and never give it as a direct email address to anyone for any reason. I then stay logged into the aggregator, possibly running Chrome for that purpose only, since I usually use Firefox. I know this isn't a complete protection, but it will stymie lots of Honan-style attacks, since any one feeder account is likely to be different from the one used on the account that the attacker is trying to get into, effectively putting a firewall between those two accounts. I'd be curious what you think. I'd also be curious what your thoughts are about using Gmail for the aggregator versus an account under a custom domain through my hosted exchange provider. As I see it, Gmail gives me two-factor authentication and some additional separation from my other accounts. My real email accounts are all hosted exchange accounts on my own domains. Then again, it makes Google's security procedures a single point of failure, Ethan Stone. So an, this sort of represents, I, I chose this as a proxy for many people who proposed similar ideas. I think the our Matthew Stone, Stone, our Matt Hogan. Um, Hogan? Honan. 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 Uh, right. Uh it gave a lot of people pause because they realized, ooh, that's what I'm doing. Right, right. <laughs> you know, that could happen to me. And, and clearly what we saw in the scenario that we covered with Matt was the, the problem of, of guessability of his email accounts and the, the multi-use of an email account. I've and we discussed this a few more times during the um, the remainder of these Q of, of these Q and A. So um, I'll I'll go into this as we encounter them because we wrap up with perhaps a superior approach that that I like a lot uh, for what it offers. But the essentially I, I wanted to sort of highlight this as as the thinking that many people have done and, and, and the fact that it certainly begins to solve the problem. Um, I, I agree that w with Ethan that I, I don't think having a, a, an aggregator that's in Gmail is a problem. Google offers strong authentication. I talked a couple of weeks ago about wanting to assemble sort of a, a, a formal statement and the news overrode my ability to do that. So I'll just take this moment to say that it seems to me the source of 
most of this is the whole issue of password recovery. And, for example, as we have mentioned, Leo, it is crazy for me to use a a multi-factor authentication device to log into PayPal and underneath the field where I am to provide the code from my my hardware, you know, football, there's a link that says I don't have it with me. Okay, <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> what is wrong with this picture? Because the hacker doesn't have my football with him either. Right. And so what I what I think we need to the next step in this, what we need from websites, and this is not a hard problem to solve, is a checkbox which can be enabled by default. That's okay. Where and and what that says is when we're creating our account or in our security settings, it is enable password recovery, and it can be on. Fine. We need to be able to turn it off. We need to be able to say we're adults. We care more about security than we do ease of being hacked. I mean, the reason I want this device is I'm saying. I will take responsibility for arranging to have it with me one way or the other. And now that we have oath for, you know, <laughs> smartphone-based Google authentication style, it's easy to have it with us. And if you can grab, as I talked about last time, the the key and put it in your various iOS devices so that you're not stuck with it only in one I mean, th- then you you know you we've we've created much stronger authentication. But then, if that's the case, don't don't ask me the name of my first girlfriend right. or of my dog or you know my favorite teacher in high school. Turn that stuff off. That's just first more of, stuff you know. That's not really oh, another factor. Exactly, and obviously, m- remember that in the story that Matt. Related, stuff just you he know. Was, the hacker was asked those questions. And he said, I don't know. I don't know. Here, but I have the last four digits of my credit card and my address. Isn't that enough? Oh, yeah. Sure, so, that's enough. So what we need to, for the, to move forward is now we have multi-factor. Now we have to turn off the bypass. Turn off. Give us the option. Leave it. Have it on by default. That's fine. Most people, that's probably okay. But every time I'm logging into PayPal and I see and I'm being asked the six-digit code and I'm holding my football right here and that right underneath that I see the link, I don't have it with me. It's like, okay, why, why am I holding my football? I just clicked that link. It's crazy. So to move forward, this is what we have to ask for. We have to say, give me the option to take responsibility. And I'm, you know, whatever it is, or, you know, maybe have something way more onerous than as something as convenient as, you know, you know, what's my mother's maiden name, you know, something that's not like that or absolutely no excuses, you know, no excuse login, whatever. That's the only way we're going to move forward is is for this is for us to be able 
to take responsibility for not forgetting our credentials because otherwise almost by default i mean almost by definition you can say unless we're given responsibility we don't have responsibility and if we don't then we don't have authentication because anybody can impersonate us I, you know, somehow I just doubt it's going to happen because um, the companies will say, but yeah, but then we're going to get calls from customers who've lost their dongle and uh, and have lost access as a result of their accounts. And that would be inconvenient. Yeah. 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 Well, and it could be more than inconvenient for that company. Um, they could get. Oh, and look at number four. What do you know? The, <laughs> ne the next question. <laughs> the next, which takes us to Tim in Sydney, <laughs> Australia who proposes perhaps we don't need immediate gratification on password resets. Hi, Steve and Leo. I say ditto. At the end of the last show, you pretty much concluded that the weakest point in an online security system these days is the password recovery system. I completely agree. I do wonder, though, why we need instant gratification when we lose a password. Why do we need to be able to access our account straight away? Why not simply deactivate the account for a couple of days after a I forgot my password reset. After all, it is my fault, and I should be made to suffer a little in the interest of security, especially for these free services. If this were enabled in Matt's case, he would have quickly realized something was up and contacted the service provider before any damage could be done. More generally, I figure there is a business opportunity for a trusted organization like the post office to offer an in-person identification service. If, for example, you were to lose an important password or otherwise be hacked, you could call Google Tech Support and after supplying the usual weak identifying information, put a hold on your account. Then Google could get you to print out a pre-filled PDF form with reference numbers and barcodes and everything. You take that to the post office where they could verify that you have what we here in Australia call 100 points of ID. Through the post office computer system, Google would learn that you are the real deal and release the account. Sure, this would not be a free solution with the post office charging a fee for each verification, but the onus is on me to maintain password security. And if I fail at that, I would not be very happy to pay. I would be very happy to pay for my mistake. Similarly, if I were subject to a hack attack that would otherwise succeed, I would be happy to pay as well. If such a feature were an option in Gmail security settings, I would enable it in an instant. Tim. It's interesting to invoke the post office because this is not the first time the post office has come up in the context of security. You may remember, Leo, that there was some discussion for a while about the idea of some sort of personal IDs, you know, personal certificates. And the question was, well, how would that be managed? Where would How would people approve their identity and how who would issue them and so forth? And the answer that was proposed was the post office. You know, they're, they're at least in the U.S. and apparently in Australia, it, they're ubiquitous. They're they're staffed with people. You know, you're having if you have a package that you need to pick up, uh, you know, that, that that's registered, you have to provide some proof of identity in order to pick it up. Um, so that's sort of that's an interesting idea, and also the notion that well, maybe we don't need an instant bypass of our identity, the, the notion of, you know, sending out information to the registered email address and putting a hold for some length of time on the account uh, would allow um, 
you know, w would certainly shut down the hackers' immediate need to do all these things. One of the things that we, that we saw in, in the Matt Honan story was that, you know, remember there was a timeline where it was like at 545, this happened, at 550, this happened, at 555, that happened, at five at five or at six o'clock, that happened. And so, you know, it was like bang, 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 where they were they were in lockstep um, sort of spreading through his own electronic identity um, all because they were able to do this very quickly. And so, you know, the, the, the notion of some sort of a, of a refractory period after a, a password recovery is an interesting one. Hmm. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I know. You guys living in, the, uh, in a dream world. <laughs> dream on! Ed Riley in Springfield, Massachusetts, wonders how web-based Wi-Fi authentication works. Stephen Leo, I love the show. Using SpinRite since 1993. Wow. When we would use it to change the interleave. He says interweave, but it's interleave. Yep. On the old drives to speed them up. Yep. I remember that. <laughs> Did yep. SpinRite do that? You could change the interleave from one to one or four to one? What, it was originally four to one to one to one. Make it faster. It's an amazing. It's amazing. Uh, IBM released the XT, which was the, the, the PC with a hard drive in it. And the interleave was... Wrong. They didn't know what it was supposed to be. It was six to one. Six to one. Six to one, which meant that every that that, that successive logical sectors were spaced six sectors ahead. So the computer the idea would for, was that you wouldn't have to wait all to for the drive to spin all the way around. To well, to, yeah, well, yeah. The, the the problem was the the bus at the time was so slow. That you, if you read a sector, then you asked for the next one that was already, and, and, and if the next one was physically adjacent, it was already too late to get it. So you'd have to go a whole revolution around to get sector two. Then you, you got that and you'd ask for number three and you have to go all the way around again. So they would be spaced out and interleaved among each other to give the software time to ask for the next sector. Well, then what happened was Western Digital came along with a famous 1003 controller that was in all the clone, all the PC clone machines. And they thought, well, we're going to have our controller be twice as fast. We'll set the interleave to three. And so what happened was with, with, with an interleave of six, naturally, it would take six revs to read all 17 MFM formatted sectors. Western Digital could do it in three revs. Because every, because you would get every third sector each time around. The problem was the clones were not fast enough to do an interleave of three. They needed four. And, and so the other problem is that all this interleaving is in the low-level format. It's the actual sector headers that contain the, the interleaving. So you can't fix this in software. So SpinWrite started out to be a a non-destructive re-low-level formatter. It would low-level format the drive and determine by building a table of performance versus interleave what the optimal interleave setting was for your particular computer in your, in your environment, and then it would fix it and it would re-low-level re format the drive, tuning the interleave to be optimal, 
And people would get a 400, in the case of Western Digital, all the clone computers, 425% performance improvement after running SpinRack just once on the drive. So, and, uh, and, and it turns out that the IBM XT, it could also run an interleave of four. So it would, it would speed it up 50% from, uh, from six revs to four revs after just running SpinRack once. So those were the days, 1993. Yep. What were we talking about? Oh, I'm sorry, Steve. I'm on the line with my bank <laughs> that I have a fraudulent charge. I'll get, all, I'll get back to you in just a second. <laughs> uh, okay, thank you. I don't. I don't. Thanks so much. All right. Bye-bye. Apparently, just a few minutes ago, uh, somebody charged $5 at an Arkansas Hyatt Ooh. on the card that I have right here. And then, uh, and then like 50 cents on a, uh, something in England. And I asked him, I said, well, that, I, that, I definitely didn't do those. And, uh, and he said, I said, what, he said, well, what, sometimes they'll do these small charges to test. Those are test, test charges. Yep. Arkansas and England. And they immediately flagged it because, uh, you know, I don't, I don't normally buy things in England and Arkansas within a few minutes of itself. And I do have the card right here. That's my business card. So, um, they caught it. So now I'm without a card for three days, but better than that than uh, more charges. Yep, that happens. You know, when I when I uh, I think I've mentioned when I'm traveling home for the holidays, which I do well the holidays <laughs> annually. <laughs> yes. My uh, my my travel agent will say, "Okay, Steve, uh, do we still have the same card as last year? Because <laughs> right. you know, they they tend to be a little slippery." It's like, that's ah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Yep. No, and and by the way, I don't answer the phone normally. In fact, it normally never rings. I was kind of surprised uh, during the show, but it said yeah. Bank of America fraud, and I thought, oh, I'm on security now. I should probably answer that call. <laughs> and I'm busy talking anyway, so you probably just be able to slip, slip that one in. Snuck it in there. <laughs> Question number six: James Gilbert in the woods near my canopy, Florida. Questions backup. Good show. I've been listening for about a year. I remember watching Leo back in the ZDTV days. You too, Steve. You were on with yeah. us. I got to thinking about the whole subject of backing up your computers. Yes, it's terrible to lose important pictures or financial records or that great novel, or in my case, my great music composition that I've been working on. But if you're old enough, think about it. When we got our 35-millimeter film developed, we rarely had more than one print made. No backup. Many people tended to store negatives and prints together. No off-site backup. I still get a paper statement for my financial institution. Nobody makes a backup of that. In spite of not making local or off-site backups of these important things in the pre-personal computer age, we managed to keep the important photos and important papers. I've got a file cabinet full of music arrangements from the 1980s that were performed once then, and given the way the music business is going, the world may never hear again. But I've still got them. This suggests a couple of possibilities to me. One, we've become a bit paranoid about backups. Two, we don't treat our data with the same respect and concern we had with those old photos. Or three, computers have a long way to go before they can be considered as reliable as paper. I lean toward number one, but I suspect all three are true to some degree or another. Any thoughts, James? We've sort of talked about this in different contexts from time to time. And it interests me because my, I, I'm on number three. Computers have a long way to go before they can be considered as reliable as paper. I'll bet that if I were to somehow do a survey of the reason most people purchased Spinrite initially, it would be because photos were lost. 
Right. I think photos uniquely are, I mean, that's certainly not the only thing that people have to recover. But music, most people don't create themselves. They got them from CDs or they downloaded them from online or something. Um, other, you know, movies, they're not creating themselves typically. Again, you know, those came from somewhere else. But photos are uniquely media they created themselves. And as we've moved to digital cameras and away from the 35 millimeter uh, film, they've been in digital format. I, and I just, I, I was just seeing another uh, Spinrite story uh, this morning when I was going through the mailbag about, you know, Spinrite recovering absolutely precious photos. And so, so what's different, I think, about this digital domain, as, as James notes, uh, or asks us is that this stuff still, I mean, computers are failure prone. That's my business is helping people recover from the fact that, that hard drives are always being pushed to store probably more data than they really should to offer the reliability that people would like. I don't think I've mentioned, Leo, I don't know if you're aware, you may have seen the news go by that the warranty periods of hard drives have been snuck down uh, also. They're like three the months day. now, right? Yeah, they they used to be multiple years, yeah. and they said, "Ah, we're going to kind of shorten those warranty periods." It's I like, think Ooh. part of that is people are buying OEM drives now. They they want the cheap, cheap, cheap drives. Remember, OEM warranties were always ninety days, and then you could buy the uh, you know the inbox shelf version, and they were yeah. I think they were like like Western Digital used to yeah. be three years, and yeah. I think it's brought it down now. Yeah. Five years on the Western Digital Ray Edition. Five years. So yeah. I mean, nobody's going to warranty a phone drive for five years. So, That's crazy. So you know, a a shoebox of photos, unless your house burns down, but but they don't spontaneously cease to exist. It really is the case, though, that some percentage of data stored on computer media doesn't. It's not only hard drives, although they're physical and the most temperamental. You know, we people have problems with thumb drives where it just it breaks it maybe All a little static a little static zap yeah. goes out and, and touches one of the pins and suddenly it's all gone right and without backup uh you know or data recovery you're in trouble so so you know it's a it's a different problem but but i, I think people really do need to maturely understand that they're if, if it's really precious if it's if it's irreplaceable make copies yeah. Because the computer may not give it back to you. Somebody uh, in the chat room, uh, Web1038, said, and the other thing, the other side is there's zero cost in space and time to making a backup of digital or very little cost. So it's one thing to say, I'm going to make a backup of this shoebox of photos. That's non-trivial. Yeah. Or to Xerox a whole pile of papers. Right, right. And, I mean, people do lose photos in fires all the time. Yeah. And it's a tragedy. But it's just so much difficulty to back it up whereas backing up your hard drive if you just do it is not a lot of difficulty so yeah, i think web 1038 in the chairman has also has a point there um that it is easier that's one of the advantages of the digital you know when we um i had uh we had one set of slides in the family there were our family slides man we're in my mom's attic and i felt like that Ooh. was risky right yeah so my sister brought him in got him scanned and each member of the family got a CD. Now I feel much better about those pictures. And I uploaded them to Smugbug. So those pictures are preserved. Yeah. You know, there isn't just one copy. And that made me nervous. 
So in a way, I think this is a this is a, a new capability that we didn't have before. That's that makes it better to save stuff. Not that anybody's going to want to see those pictures in a few years, but <laughs> you know, you wonder. You save all this stuff. Who's going to look at it? You know, my grandson. I don't know. Maybe. I think if I had pictures, wouldn't it be interesting if you had pictures of your great 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 grandfather. Yes, yes, that would yeah. be of some interest. Uh, yeah, and you know, there there really is a notion of the world before the internet not being online. It's not recorded. I mean, you know, everything since is like going to be archived forever, and everything before it's like eh, it's kind of creaky and dusty, and it's never going to be online. Yeah, I I mean, wish we had archival footage of Abe Lincoln and George Washington. Uh, those things would be value, really, yeah. really intensely valuable now. So it, it is a different era. Yeah. Mark in Melbourne, Australia, wonders about secure usernames. Stephen Leo, we know what makes a password more or less secure. Uh, length, size of uh, character set, randomness, unique to website, server, etc. But I don't think yet I've heard you talk about what makes for a more secure username. How do you choose your user's name, Steve? And when the website service uses email addresses, should you use your main email address? You know, this is actually germane because one of the things that made it easy for the bad guys to get Matt Honan's stuff is he always used Matt Honan at service.com. Yes, gmail.com at, uh, and at so me.com. They could guess his email address, and that would yes. turn out to be crucial in the success of the hack. Yes, and so this is a really good point that we'll leverage into our closing question also. Um, and this is a problem, is that, is that email addresses are our usernames. That's the common practice now, is you, you create an account with your email address and your username. I mean, sorry, your email address as your username and then a password. And the, the, from, the, from the account um, service side, fr fr from the web service side, it, there's an advantage to that. You don't need a username separate from an email address. The username is their way of contacting you for verifying it, for unfortunately bugging you with, you know, free offers and random garbage that you may or may not want. But also importantly, think about it. They don't have to worry about username collisions. Because two different people don't have the same email account. Which is great. Yes. And so it's like, oh, sorry, this username is taken. Right. Well, you know, we have that with Twitter because there, there we really want a separate username, our Twitter handle, separate from our email address. But, you know, that creates a chunk of overhead. Right. And if you use an email account as your username, you solve the the uniqueness problem of usernames because email accounts are sort of inherently unique. So, uh, but we'll, we'll talk a little bit more in a second about uh, what makes a good one. Clearly, though, uh, as you said, Leo, you don't want it to be, you know, First name, last the same name. Yeah. on all of your accounts. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to have to really look at that because I use that everywhere. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> Alejandro, but nobody knows my middle name. Alejandro in Chicago has encountered... Quote, non-routable 5.xxxx addresses. Steve, this is my very first time contacting someone over the net. Wow, welcome, Alejandro. Yeah. <laughs> but I thought it would be a great opportunity to get a little more information about IP addresses in the 5.0 range. I remember these from Hamachi. 
Exactly. I'm currently seeding Ubuntu and other open source distributions and notice that on some of the peers, I'm connected to the IP address beginning with a 5. As I recall, you once mentioned that this range is non-routable and used only in virtual mode by Hamachi. Now log me in. If I can see these IP ranges, does that mean they are public or... These hosts are simply disguising their real IP. Every one of them, by the way, in Russia. If it helps, I was able to ping them, too. Thanks. I'm hopeful you'll choose my question for one of your episodes. Wow, that is a mystery. This is worthy of Sherlock Holmes. Well, um, and this is what we would predict with the depletion of the IPv4 address space. Five has been allocated. Oh, it's no longer unallocated. No, because remember, we're running out. Right. And 5 is the whole 5.x.x.x or star dot star dot star. That's 16 million IPs very oh, – wait, 16? Uh, 2 to the uh, two to the 24. Um, 16 million. Yeah, 16 million. So there's 16 million IPs that for the longest time was just sitting around. There was, there was no 5 anything. Yeah. And that's why Hamachi was able to very cleverly at the time use it because there was no danger of it colliding with anything public. Well, now, but, but it wasn't guaranteed unused. It was uh, just unused. Not. It wasn't it, like one ninety eight dot one sixty two or right. Those have been set aside on purpose. Yeah. You know, like ten dot star dot star dot star. That is still there's there's sixteen million IPs nobody ever gets to use because that's been deliberately set aside for local networks but five just had no one had gotten around to allocating it from out what alejandro has said that's no longer the case which i thought was really interesting i didn't i didn't verified haven't seen who got them but if he's if he's seeing peers connecting i'm assuming he's talking about like like torrent peers if he's seeing torrent peers connecting and he can ping then I mean, there's no way those can be disguised. They have to be real. So that means five is now public, which I thought was an interesting development. Yeah, yeah it's kind of depressing. The yeah. end. The end of Hamachi. <laughs> um, somebody asked uh, uh, on the radio show this week. He said he wanted to make. He had two houses uh, at different locations. Wanted to have them be on a LAN. And I said, "Well, Hamachi," but I don't know. What the status of that is now that long? Well, no, now right? either they had to have changed something because yeah. they can't be using can't five. Can't be using and... five dot. Alan M in Manchester, UK, suggests a strategy for safely emailing passwords. If your military DoD guy can run portable versions of programs, and you'll remember that he's referring to uh, a Q and A we uh, covered where somebody was. He was in a sensitive environment where he couldn't bring any devices in, but he wanted to know how to transport his password lists from place to place. Right. So he was anyway. able to use a portable uh, USB key, as yep. you would need to do for AxeCrypt. Uh, then KeyPass, the open source uh, LastPass, basically, might be a good idea for him. There's a portable apps.com version of the software. It fully encrypts the password database, which is easily emailable, as would be the program itself. It's less than five megs uncompressed. It may not be LastPass, but it's quicker to use in Excel, which is what the guy was using. Enter your passwords and double-click the username or a bunch of asterisks to copy to clipboard. Then it clears it after 12 seconds in case you forget to clear the clipboard. Hey, that's a good idea. Isn't that nice? Yeah. 
I thought this was slightly easier to use than AxeCrypt due to the auto-clearing clipboard and that someone over your shoulder never actually sees the passwords because they, they're just stars unless you wish to open the details about that specific item. Then click it to uncover it. It will also remember URLs, notes, and all that good stuff if you wanted to. It's kind of like LastPass, but it's open source and free. KeePass, K-E-E-P-A-S-S. Right, and it's little database you are able to, um, you know, carry around with you. So I wanted to share that with our listeners. Yeah, KeePass is great. And JD's final question. Our last question of the day. JD in Memphis. He has a solution for completely unique per site and service email accounts. Great show. Been listening for a while. Last pass, spin right, yada, yada, yada. (laughs) He's got a post on his blog, JD7.org. In it, I talk about how to make a different email address for every online service, but manage it all with only one email account. Basically, I quickly talk about buying a domain, using Google Apps free with that domain, and creating a mailbox that's a catch-all. You keep the primary email account secret. Don't use that anywhere. And choose a secure email address. Security Now listeners would know what such a thing should look like. Basically random characters and letters and numbers. And, exactly. But, but then when you sign up for Amazon or Pinterest or anything else, use something like Pinterest at domain.com. That'll go to your primary account because you, you own the domain. Uh, you use LastPass to keep up with all the usernames, per site email addresses, and passwords. My question is, would this be strong enough to prevent the at mat problem? would love to hear how to strengthen this. Currently, I'm using this, and that's why I suggested my blog post. I have a short three-character Twitter name. <laughs> that's what they went after Matt for. Uh-huh. and do not want to become a target as well, but I don't use my me.com email for anything either. Thanks for all you and Leo do. J.D. Memphis, Tennessee. So, okay, uh, this is the remaining link that I shortcutted in my Twitter.com posting. So anyone who wants to read what J.D. wrote, he has a, like essentially a, a step-by-step how-to. And it's free. Is very nice. Yes. Well, almost. What he suggests is you start by getting your own domain. So hover that's not free. or that's ten bucks or, or who, yeah yeah ten bucks a year right um, but you have you know the 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 coolness factor of you your should own do domain that. and you control yes. it that way you don't you know if you're changing your email server you don't have to tell everybody you just control it that's better exactly it'll never change yep. and he does me- mention making sure that you use a service that allows you to have to mask your who is data we've talked about that hover does that for that. free. Yes, so Hover looks like it would be a great choice. Yeah. So get a domain name. You'll have your own domain name, which is a cool, cool factor anyway. And using the, the using Google Apps, you can you can have essentially wildcard um, email, which is this is the coolest thing about what JD has suggested is 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 he he calls it um, a, a catch all mailbox, but the idea is that anything coming to that domain so it's anything at domain.com whatever your, your your domain is will go into there so what's cool is this gives you instantly per site per service email accounts now i would not one one improvement i would make i would not use p interest at domain.com because then we're back to guessability 
that you know someone might say oh well then he's probably using amazon at domain.com and twitter at domain.com and so forth so you want unguessable names but you can make them up on the fly you can as as he said use lastpass as your user id which would be your you know we were just before this we were talking about how our email addresses have become our user ids so or our usernames. So you really want them to be unguessable. You want them to be something, you know, someone who sees one can't guess what the other one is. And I have to say also that common names are spam bait. You know, for the longest time, I was just Steve at grc.com, and I couldn't figure out how my name got out. Well, it didn't. They were just, I, I once looked at the traffic on my own email server and servers were hooking up and just running through name lists. They were just trying to send email to, you know, every first name at grc.com that they could. And I finally got a clue and, and made my email address something else from that. So, so you don't want to be Amazon or Twitter or something common. You, you want to do something to it that will, um, will, um, not have it just automatically, um, you know, uh, and easily guessable. But anyway, so I wanted to po- to point people to this because it is a it's a cool solution. It will cost you, I think it's ten bucks a year, grand total, because Google Apps is free, uh, and you're only having to pay for the domain. But that it's neat to have your own domain too, and and then you get this wild card concept with email. And if you're willing to, you know, I mean, it's not as easy is using the same email address for everything, but your our email addresses are becoming our user ID. And it would really be nice if the, if those were unique too, in addition to our passwords oh. being unique. So much to do uh. <laughs> to secure ourselves. <laughs> at least the information's out there, and it's all here at Security Now. Thanks to Steve Gibson. Steve, you're the best. Uh, if you well, want to... I'm all we've got. So. <laughs> You're all I've got. If you want to uh, ask a question of Steve, he does these feedback episodes every other episode in general. And you can go to grc.com slash feedback. Don't email him. Just grc.com slash feedback. And uh, then you can uh, handle that uh, without any trouble. Um, just fill that form out. You can also find once you there, SpinRight, the world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. All of Steve's freebies. He's got a ton of them. ton of stuff. Um, we, we should remind our listeners of a scheduling note. Oh, uh, yes. Uh, we won't be here next Wednesday. Uh, we will be here next Tuesday. We'll flip-flop with a Mac Break Weekly because of the Apple announcement on the 12th. Yep. So uh, if you're planning to listen to Security Now Live, it will be September 11th uh, at uh, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern time. And if you're not live, it'll probably be available a day, day early. early. Yeah, well, yeah, that, we'll just put it out a little bit earlier. Yeah. Um, yeah, we make on-demand versions available after the fact at twit.tv slash SN. Steve has special uh, online uh, on-demand versions, both 16 kilobit audio for very small file sizes and the transcripts, even smaller, uh, which are done by humans, so they're very good, done by Elaine. and uh, One good human. One good human at grc.com. You'll find all of that. Um, I think that's it. Yeah, see you next Tuesday, not next Wednesday. Yep. We'll do the Apple iPhone event uh, at 10 a.m. Uh, on Wednesday, next uh, Wednesday. We're going to move uh, TNT up an hour. And then we'll do the iPhone event. Then we'll do Mac Break Weekly. It's going to be a crazy jam-packed day uh, cool. next Wednesday. 
Thank you, Steve. My pleasure, Leo. Always fun. See you next time on Security Now. Security.